0: Chapter 4, verse 2 and 6, I'm going to read this, and we're going to do it, like I said, a little bit differently today. Uh, If you ever read Deuteronomy 27 and 28, when uh, Moses, prior to going into the Promised Land, or sending them, I should say, he didn't go in. uh, He divided Israel over two mountains, and they read the, basically, blessings and cursings of the law. And after they read that, God's people affirmed what was read, that it actually was God's word, and said, Amen. And so I'm going to read the scripture, and then you have a part to play. And all I'm going to say at the end is, all God's people said, and you are going to say, this is God's word. And the reason why we're doing that is because I want you to understand that the sermon isn't about Sam being creative in coming up with things to entertain or whatever. I want you to understand that we are speaking and proclaiming God's word And by you, if you are a Christian, if you are a believer, by you saying, this is God's word, you are in many ways, verbally and otherwise, saying, I'm going to actually do what it says. That to disobey the Bible is to disobey God himself. And to obey what the Bible says to obey God himself. Just to emphasize our value of scripture. So I'm going to read Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 through 6. And I'm going to close with, and all God's people said. And if you are God's people, you will say, this is God's word together. Here we go. Verse 2 says this. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word, to declare the mystery of Christ, on account of which I am in prison that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Conduct yourselves wisely towards outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. And all God's people said? Amen. Let me pray. Father God, thank you so much for your word. I thank you for the power of your word to convict us, to encourage us, to comfort us, and to break us if need be. Holy Spirit, I pray that you will remove the veil from our hearts today, that if we have any obstacles and distractions that are preventing us from hearing you speak to us, that you will remove those. That, Father, if nothing else, we will hear you call to us today about how you want us to communicate with you and what impact that will have on our life with others. In the blood of your Son, we pray and we breathe and we live and we hope. Amen. Alright, so we are in Colossians, the very end of it here. Um, We have, this is the last of two sermons in Colossians. We've been in it for about 16 weeks, I think. And Paul stated in his letter to the Colossians pretty early, I believe in in chapter 2, that the mission or the purpose for his letter and really his entire ministry was, by his own words, To bring everyone to maturity in Christ. Now, just by way of reminder, the gospel came to the city of Colossae, which is in the Lycus Valley, by a, a, a Colossian, the words of a Colossian, named Epaphras. And Epaphras had heard Paul preach at Ephesus. And he had heard him preach. He had been impacted by, obviously, God's word and his ministry, learned from Paul. And then he left and went back home. With the purpose of proclaiming the gospel and basically planting the church in Colossae and in others. And he stayed there and he taught there. And five years later, a now is going to look for Paul after applying the church, not after have been in Ephesus. He's going to look for Paul and he finds him basically in a Roman prison. And he comes to tell him about false teachers that have come into the church. That he has planted in his city, and they're telling these young believers that they're not spiritual enough, basically. That they're not full. That they need something more than Jesus. So Paul listens to him, and he writes this letter. He also wrote the letter to the Ephesians, and also the letter to Philemon, and they're all taken by the same guy, on the travel. So Paul writes this letter to remind the Colossians, and it will be a letter that will be circulated to all the churches in the valley and probably beyond, and someday it will come back to us as we see. But he writes to remind believers that faith in Jesus Christ is all they need. That there are many, 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 many false saviors and there is only one true one. And we I've learned as you've just kind of listened to Paul and how he writes that you don't mature through things like legalism. You don't mature through things like asceticism. You don't mature through things like mysticism or any kind of man-made spiritual-sounding isms. That's what he is combating at this point. What he says is, is, Being spiritual doesn't mean you go from being irreligious to uber-religious in whatever form that takes. And there are lots of forms it can take, some a little freakier than others. But faith in Christ, new life in Christ is, is just that. It's being dead to Christ and now alive in Christ. There's a complete transformation that has very little to do with fleshly outside things. It's an internal change. And faith is matured, faith is grown, faith is further developed when that mystery of Christ, that same gospel, is more deeply understood, and then, as we've seen Paul lay it out specifically in chapter 3, as that same gospel, who Jesus is and what he did is applied to the non-spiritual things like being a husband, or a wife, or a parent, or being honoring to God in your job. That's where life is fleshed out. The gospel is deeply applied, not in the spiritual stuff that looks really spiritual. This stuff is spiritual, if you will. So now Paul is going to close his letter, and it's reminding these Jesus-loving Christians of their responsibility, which he already has, to know Jesus, to spend their time looking at Jesus, but also to make Jesus known to the world. Believers, did you know that was your job? That's not optional. That's not like just what missionaries do. That it actually is what you do, what we do. See, the gospel goes forth in many places on days like this from pastors in pulpits. The gospel goes forth. But for most of us, you aren't going to be behind a pulpit. I didn't think I was going to ever be behind a pulpit. Most of us will not be. Most of us are going to preach sermons, quite frankly, with our character, with our conversations, with our marriages, with our families, or at our jobs. Not with our mouths, necessarily, But at some point, you will open your mouth. But those are sermons. You are going to proclaim something about your faith in Christ if someone knows you have faith in Christ. It's amazing how many guerrilla Christians are out there that you never know they're guerrilla Christians. Because they never say anything at all. But these conversations, your character, your marriages, your family, how you parent, how you work, those are the tools for God's mission. I don't know if you've ever thought about a conversation with somebody, whether it be at a coffee shop or just at work, is actually a tool. And I don't mean giving them some four spiritual laws, flat out, explicit declaration of the gospel. I just simply mean in what you speak and how you speak. See, living a a life um, that's irreligious or religious is really easy. You can be uber-religious and hang out with uber-religious people and be really kind of distanced from everyone else who's not religious. Or you can be really irreligious and be frowned upon by the religious people, but it's easy It's easy to have no religion. It's easy to have some system of religion. What's really hard is living a transformed life that's radically shaped by Christ on the depths of the smallest details of how you have a conversation, of what your marriage looks like, of how your parents. That's hard. Incredibly hard. And it's really hard because in our age, there's a lot of other things that we would consider priorities. Some important, some really foolish, that compete for our attention. There are all kinds of temptations to, to distract us. Um, there are all kinds of philosophies that are easy to follow and buy into. And quite frankly, the urgency of living for, for here and now in the moment seems to trump living for Christ in any sense of the eternal. It's hard. And the question that, that I've wrestled with this week, and I've wrestled with perhaps my whole Christian life, is how is it possible to be a dedicated and devoted godly man? How can it be a godly parent? How can it be a godly... Wor- I mean, I just see, it just seems so stinking hard. How is it possible not to, to taste of the newest flavor of the month in terms of some philosophy or some idea, or just kind of run with what the world Or even my good friends want to go. And I'll tell you, here's the secret. Ready? I figured it out. Read the Bible, figured it out. Prayer. Prayer Prayer's the secret. And if you're struggling with living like that, I bet your prayer life sucks. And I don't say that in a condemning way because mine rocks. I'm here to tell you, mine sucks. I was deeply um, convicted this week, maybe for the first time in a long time. I should say it was more last week, and it was like a week and a half. I got to sit in the snow and think about how I suck so bad. (laughs) But a steadfast devotion I've realized in Christ is only possible by the Holy Spirit through prayer. And like I said, and I, I don't say this so that I can like, manipulate you and like, cause you to be... I'm just going to be really raw with you. Uh, I am a... I, I struggle with prayer. And uh, I, I actually confess that I think I've really failed to lead this church in prayer. I mean that in all seriousness. Um, and it seems... The hard part for me is being the pastor. I say one of the pastors. Is that for better or worse, a family... <clears throat> And a family of families, so that would be the church, is shaped by the attitudes and actions of leadership, both its strength and its weaknesses. So all the things that I, that I, that I might love about the church, I go, yeah, it's really like the things I love about myself. It's like, oh, yeah, look at that strength. And then all the weaknesses, it's easy to get irritated by, like, I wish they would do this. And not actually go, well, actually, that just shows where you're quite pathetic, Why are you getting so irritated with that when really what you're getting irritated is with yourself? And I've learned that a family or a church, so if you're a husband, I really believe this, that it can't mature past the maturity of its leaders. Someone told me that this week, and it resonated too strongly with me. And I fear that my weak prayer life has just hindered our church a little bit in its growth. I don't mean numeric growth. I just mean its growth and taking the gospel deeper and seeing a Christ-centeredness come out without trying to force it or make a program. Like, why why isn't that happening? And I think it goes back to my prayer life. Uh, Everyone needs to know, and I say especially men, especially men, That a pathetic commitment to prayer is not simply unfortunate. It's sinful. And I can't persuade you of that. I really convinced myself of otherwise for a long time until this week when God smacked me really hard. For whatever reason, He finally opened my eyes in a way that have not been opened before. That actually it's sinful. And if it's sinful, it's not a matter of making you, you some simple system to pray better. It actually begins with repentance. It begins with confessing, I have not prayed as I ought. Forgive me, Father, for not communicating with you, for not talking with you, for not listening to you. And so if you think about missional apathy, like, you know, the idea of doing anything for God is nah, kind of indifferent towards it. If you think about spiritual deadness, like, man, my, it just feels blah. Or if you have what you would consider an immature faith as an individual, or if any of these things exist for your family or church, know that I firmly believe it's caused by a lack of your communication with God. Now, God revealed this before I really saw what the passage we were going to hit was. And then I read, pray continually and steadfastly. Thanks, Paul. Okay? Just like laying another 18 inches of snow on my back. It was just like, ugh. I read a little bit about Martin Luther, which didn't help. And he said uh, he was a great great reformer. He had his issues, really bad ones, uh, but he was a fireball and He's been called a genius of prayer, and historical records show that Luther prayed for four hours a day. Now Luther did a lot. I mean, he accomplished a ton, and he wrote a ton. And I'm like, four hours a day? I'm imagining four hours just to pray. For me, that feels like root canal work. I mean, it's like, wow, four hours. In my mind, and this is the sin in me. My mind goes, think of all the things I could do. In four hours. It's like, wait a second, that's so bad to think that. But he was a pastor, and he set a solid example for his flock of the value and necessity of prayer. I'm not talking about numeric. Like, You pray four hours, you're more holy than the guy who prays three and a half. I'm not saying that. But it's clear he valued prayer. And he demonstrated that he valued prayer. Whether you pray for 15 minutes or four hours people knew he valued prayer. He said, quote, as a shoemaker makes a shoe and a tailor makes a coat, so ought a Christian to pray. Prayer is the daily business of a Christian. Christians pray, period. Not because it's necessary or dutiful, though I think we probably could make an argument that it is, but because it is just essential We don't pray because it's easy. It's because it's lifeblood. Luther said also it wasn't easy. He said that prayer was the hardest work of all. He said, A labor above all labors, since he who prays must wage almighty warfare against doubt and murmuring excited by faint-heartedness and unworthiness within us. Prayer's hard. I know, I know it's hard. I know a lot of you who have not... I, I'm just speaking like myself. I say a lot of you. I'm talking about me. It's just easier to deflect, right? A lot of you. Okay, a lot of us, right? We sit, we pray. Our mind wanders after about 10 seconds. You hear something. You're like, oh, oh okay, what, what am I doing? And you kind of just get distracted. It's very hard for us to sit inside, especially with this busy world. I went back to a dumb phone, some of you might have read my blog. I used to have that smartphone where you could do all kinds of things that are really stupid, but you know, it's called smart. Because it was I, I got allured, I got addicted to it. I was always thinking like, oh, there's a flash. It must be an important something. I should probably check that. Okay. We're like that. It's difficult for us to to pray. We're easily distracted. And we use a lot of excuses, I think, to justify. The fact that we don't pray, our discomfort, our busyness, our exhaustion, the bad examples we've had, our personality. I'm just not not a prayer person. In truth, they're all covers up, I think, for pride and just unbelief. Because if you really believe prayer worked, you would pray constantly. If you really believed it was essential, you would do it. And I'll just say this as a side note. If your life is too busy for prayer or spending time in God's word, you need to unbusy your life. I don't care if that means unbusying your kids, unbusying your job. You need to unbusy your life. You're you're busy in a sinful way. You really are. But we don't want to disconnect prayer from everything Paul's already said because it gets very specific. You can go on like, I'm just going to pray for a bunch of stuff. That's not what he's talking about. He says there's a purpose in prayer, that we are to work hard in being watchful and thankful. So he asks, what are we supposed to be watching for? And here's where I've come to the conclusion. Paul commanded Timothy several times, quote, watch yourself. Watch yourself, Timothy. Watch yourself. Watch yourself. Sometimes our prayer life is more concerned about watching everything else but ourselves, and specifically our own heart. This is a letter about being Christ-centered, a letter about making sure Jesus is at the center of everything you're doing. That's what we're supposed to be watching for. If you remember when Jesus um, was in the Garden of Gethsemane waiting to be arrested, that's what he told his disciples. He said, watch, be alert, stay awake, keep watch. And he didn't want them to watch for those he knew were coming to arrest him, like, let me know when they're here. That wasn't it. He specifically told them he wanted them to fight unbelief. He told them, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak and easily gives in to temptation. See, when we don't do the hard work of prayer, and I'm not going to be flippant and say it's not, it is hard. When we don't stay awake with Christ... The enemy will lull us to sleep and it will be slow, but it will be certain. And before you know it, your eyes are off of Christ. And just like his disciples, when things get hard or chaotic or surprising, you run in fear, you hide in shame, or you may even, like his disciples, reject Jesus publicly when you're not being watchful. Prayer is a grace. Prayer is a grace. And what it does is not allow us to get all kinds of things that we want. It's not just prayer like a pile of quarters that we can just throw in the vending machine and keep getting as much junk as we want. Prayer is the means and the grace by which we remain laser-focused in knowing Jesus as supreme and sufficient. Of keeping him there. It is, it is a fight and the grace by which we fight from the temptation to find ultimate satisfaction or security or hope in something other than him. If you ever notice Paul's prayers, they're never about, well pray for like this practical thing. When he prays, he's always praying that you will know God, because that is what protects us from knowing something else in an intimate. In worshipful way, and so I was really thinking about why people are pray- prayerless, why I'm prayerless, and when have I prayed most in my life. I prayed a ton when we first planted the church, like nonstop on-my-face prayer, because I was scared to death. And then suddenly you, you stop being scared. It's like when you first get married, I prayed a lot. Because I felt this weight of like, okay, I got to protect. Okay, of course, I really suck at that. So i you know, praying a lot. And then suddenly you get used to each other. Yeah, we'll pray, I guess. You become less desperate. And I began to realize that um, we can actually organize our lives in such a way, because it's easy in this world to be so safe and so comfortable that we actually don't have to live by faith. Did you know that? We can position ourselves in such a way where we don't have to depend upon God. And so I think the key to prayer, a prayerful life, is actually putting yourself in a position where you actually have to live by faith. We actually have to depend upon God for something, maybe for a lot of things. Because we tell God, quite frankly, that we don't need Him when we refuse to live in a way that's like Christ, when we refuse to live sacrificially, when we refuse to give generously, when we refuse to love graciously. See, loving graciously, you end up loving people that aren't lovable. That's hard for me. It may, not be, it may be really easy for you. For me, that takes prayer. It takes an incredible amount of faith. And I need that faith from God. But see, doing hard things, doing faithful things, doing things that require you to depend upon God, man, if you put yourself in that position, you'll find that you'll be thrown to your knees. It will just happen. Because you'll be in a position where God will have to show up or it won't happen. Some of us have created really little safe kingdoms so that we don't have to feel the need for God. And God's command to live by faith quite frankly, is, is more of an invitation to know Him. We don't see it that way. We think that God just wants to make it really hard on us. Just live by faith, you know, give away more than you really think you should. Love this person over here, though. It's really difficult, and I just want you to, like, feel the sufferings of Christ in doing it. You know, that's like, whoa. We don't view it as an invitation, like, man... And this is what I think, and I don't want to think for God, but like, what if, what if God is pushing us into that place so much so, kind of like we pushed Adam and Eve out of the garden, so much so that you're going to have to need him, so you're going to have to pray with him, so you're going to have to know him. It's making me look at prayer very differently, because those who are prayerful, those Have you ever seen, like, the most prayerful people are those people, like, um, in uh, third world countries right now that are praying for their next meal? Those in China uh, who are hiding underground and gathering as a church, prayer is suddenly really important to them because every knock on the door might mean something really bad. In America, I'm going to get a knock on the door and I'll just maybe decide to ignore it, right? I'm not expecting the Gestapo there to take me away. Those people that are prayerful have this attitude about them. And I, I really want this attitude. I want this to be natural. I want this. This is the desire of my heart. They actually see themselves as desperate for help. They see themselves as desperate for help. They, they see how broken they are. They don't fake it. I'm not, I, I really am not faking that I suck at prayer. Which is causing me to pray more. I've prayed more in the last week and a half than i probably prayed in the last six months. It's been a joy. I've been doing it like, I've got to make sure I can prove I'm prayerful now. It's not it. I'm just telling you what my heart is, what's happening. I'm seeing myself more screwed up and more broken. I'm coming face to face with it. I find that people who are really prayerful just don't put much hope in the flesh. They understand that they're in a spiritual war and that they have an enemy that never sleeps. So let me just ask you a really wonderfully terrible question, okay? And that is this. At what point in your prayer life do you think that not talking to God becomes sinful? What point is that? For me, I've reached that point. I was able to justify and excuse it a long time. But at some point, you basically tell God, I really don't need you it great knowing you. Thanks for saving me. But I'm going to go spend my time over here. Imagine doing that in a marriage. Right? I know we're married. I'll talk to you like in two weeks. Or if something goes bad. I mean, that's really what we do with God. And I've just been crushed by that. He also tells us that part of being watchful is being thankful, and and it's hard to be thankful in prayer, quite frankly, because I think we have a wrong wrong view of gratitude. Like when God answers our prayers and gives us what we want, we're thankful. That's how thankfulness works with us. Well, I'll be thankful when you do what I want you to do. Other than that, I have nothing to be grateful for. When God um, tells us to be thankful... Sometimes we look at that as like, well, I just have to have a thankful attitude because that's like the magic word to get what I want. So I'm going to come to him in thankfulness and then ask for something. If he doesn't give me it, my thankfulness, is gone. It's like this weird trick we play in our minds, I think. But I just tell you, a lack of gratitude is the doorway to idolatry. A lack of gratitude is a doorway to idolatry. And that's because thankfulness is memory of God's grace put to words not just thoughts. It is being forced to remember and forcing the discipline to remember what God has done. It is an act of praise, but it's also a means of protection from idolatry. In the Old Testament, if you just read how many times God reminds Israel constantly, remember, remember where you were, remember what I did for you, remember the promises I have for you, remember, and what did they do? they'd forget, and they'd forget. He'd come back and say, remember, remember my warnings, remember my promises, remember who I am, remember you were in slavery. That's what thankfulness is. More than anything, as we begin to pray, we're being thankful for what God has done in our hearts, for what God has done um, graciously despite our unfaithfulness. Despite our brokenness, despite our rebellion, all the things that God has done. I tell you what, remembering all that God has done puts what he hasn't done or what you hope has done in a very different perspective. Verse 3 and 4 says this, as, as, as we remember all that God has done for us personally, Paul now begins to transition, his whole letters. is transition. I think it's interesting that this is the only, like the last part of the letter is about evangelism. Most of it's been about, get your life right with God. Then you can talk to people. And this is where he's going to go, though. He charges the Colossians to remember the mission of God and that what he actually expects them to do for others. And he says, at the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word and declare the mystery of Christ on account which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which I ha- make it clear which is how I ought to speak. So the mission of God is a responsibility, as I've said, of all Christians. I believe it can't happen without prayer. You won't have the desire without prayer. But knowing Christ through prayer, you begin to love Christ and you begin to know what it's like and to live like Him. And one of the things that like Him is that He is sent. He is sent to to proclaim good news to the captives. Freedom to those who are enslaved. And so some people, the missionaries, the, the pastors, the guys who lead whatever ministries, yeah, some of those guys might seem like on the front lines, but everyone's in the battle. And we talk about praying for, you know, joining prayer teams for, for Jim's church or things like that. I just wonder how seriously we really take that. Because the reality is prayer is a weapon for us to use for the glory of God on his mission. And so ask yourself, when's the last time you actually prayed for Jim and his church? When's the last time you prayed for a missionary or a new church plant somewhere? Is that even in your focus of those guys out there that are doing that? Most of the time, let's be honest, our our, our prayer is, is pretty self-centered. And then... If you've been in church culture any amount of time, you've probably heard the open door phrase, right? And I don't mean to make fun of it, but i don't make fun of it. And that is when people talk about, like, I'm just praying for a door to open, praying for, you know, the Lord to just creak that door open so I can walk through it, whatever. It's really that thing you want. You're hoping God blows it open so you can get it. But when we look at open doors and the way Paul uses it, and it's not used very uh, anywhere else I don't believe. It's used for a new gospel work in the world. It's new, used for when the gospel is going to go out in a place that it may have not been before. For an opportunity to share the mystery of Christ. See, life for us, in, in thinking about that, you know what, it's just too stinking busy to think about the mission of God sometimes and I, you know, I've got a lot of stuff to take care of. And maybe when God starts to answer some of my personal prayers, then I'll be ready to think about that. The reality is a lot of, if you're not a believer in Christ, he is here to transform your life. He is here to take you, who you, maybe you won't admit you're dead, you're broken, you've fallen short, and give you new life and new hope and new joy. And those who have experienced that, he's actually here to send you on mission. To get you to move, to get you to do something. And the crazy thing is that Paul is in prison when he prays this. And he doesn't pray that the doors of the prison will be open. Isn't that interesting? I think a lot of us think like, you know, if I could just get past this and I'll start thinking about the things of God. Whatever prison that is. It may not be the worst prison, but it's a thing that's restraining you. Your job, some relationship, your debt, whatever it is. Well, when I get out of this, that's not what Paul prays. He's like, why I'm here. Pray that I get an opportunity. Not to get out, but to preach. But to display Christ. To show someone else, like, ooh, there's hope, there's joy here in prison? Heck yes. And if you read the letter to the Philippians, you'll see that it happened many times. Where he was able to talk with men in prison. Paul doesn't ask that the prison doors will be open for God to make being a Christian easier. Just make it easier. Give me some extra money so then I can go ahead and bless somebody. Right? Now that I won the lottery, I can finally serve God. Right? Now that I'm retired, I guess I can start working for the church. Seriously? Think about all those things. The mission of God, here's a news flash for you it's very inconvenient sometimes. Very inconvenient but I'm telling you, there's nothing like it. It's the most wonderful, horrible thing there is. There's an incredible amount of joy in it, and there is some sacrifice, without doubt. But Paul's ultimate hope is simply that he will get the opportunity to preach Jesus, and when he does, he asks that he will speak clearly. I love this. I want that to be my prayer. And I say that for a reason, because it's really hard to be a pastor these days. It's really hard because you can listen to a million pastors on podcasts. And you can see all kinds of crazy things on the internet. And it's very, very tempting, I'll just be honest with you, to want to come up with some, you know, shocking statement or some incredible gimmick to like, look at me! You should listen to me! i got lots of things. I mean, I'm not going to question the motivations of any other pastors, but I'm just telling you my own temptation to be clever. I've got to come up with some really good jokes so that they laugh Otherwise, they won't remember anything because, parenthetical, God's word's not enough. And that, Paul, man, gosh. Imagine the witness. And it happened once where the jail doors were blown open and he didn't leave. Right? That'd be great. Just blow the doors open, God, and show my power for you all. Then I can preach. He didn't say that. So if I get an opportunity, let me just speak clearly not with some clever marketing or stupid gimmick. Just speak clearly God's word. How often when we're talking to others do we think we have to have like some clever, fanciful, creative statement as opposed to just let me just speak clearly. I love Jesus. I know I'm a sinner. And he saved me. And I get to heaven because of what he did because I pretty much stink. But he loved me enough to forgive me. That's pretty simple. It's Really simple. He doesn't have to be clever. He wants to be clear. And the reason why is because there's power in the Word of God. Let me just read what Paul says, because he says it much better than me in 2 Corinthians, where it's a pretty jacked-up church. There's all kinds of crazy things going on in, this, in the city of Corinth. Here's what he says in 2 Corinthians 4, one of my favorite verses as a preacher. Therefore, having this ministry by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, With ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake, for God has said, "Let light shine out of the darkness." Has shown in our hearts to give the light of knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Jesus, you openly going to tell about Jesus. That's it. It's beautiful. Close it out really fast because I don't want to try and be more timely. It's a commitment I have this year. I probably will fail at that. It says in verse five. Not only do I think, <clears throat> excuse me, Paul's desire as a preacher is a good one and it should be my desire, but my prayer and my honest prayer is that it's the same commitment in your life because you're going to have conversations with other people that, again, I'm telling you, are, are going to be sermons, maybe not in the same exact way, but they will be. And you preach a sermon with your life every day in the world, and you may have the opportunity to speak about Christ to your neighbor's. But the most important thing you can do before you say a word is to live. Christ-centered. Husbands, to love your wives. Wives, to love your husbands. To love your children. To work well at your jobs. Those are the best things. And he says, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of time. So he charges the Colossians to act and speak in particular ways. And again, you don't want to divorce us from his charge to pray because that is how we understand by the Spirit, how we ought to live and how we are empowered, I believe, to meet those expectations. But we walk in wisdom. There's lots of ways to walk and live. You can walk in a lot of common sense. You can walk in the wisdom of the world, but that's very different than walking in the wisdom of God. And you cannot walk as God asks you to walk unless you read your Bible and you pray that the Holy Spirit will teach you what it says. Period. So if you're not reading your Bible and you're not praying, your walk sucks. It's impossible for it not to. I know that's harsh, but if you say, I love Jesus, I want to walk like him, you best learn what that means. And it can't just be Sunday morning sermons from Sam, it can't be John Piper's book. It has to be the Word of God. None of those things have power. This does. Okay? Read your Bible, bring your Bible. I know you got all kinds of Kindles and things like that, and I think it's a shame that we never get to hear this anymore, right? Bring your Bible. Walk around with your Bible. That's where there's power. It says to walk not only in wisdom, but also to walk toward, which I think is an interesting thing to think about. We're not just walking with um, spectators Hoping we see they see us. Certainly that happens, but we are walking with an intention to engage people in our walk. You are walking in a way that's evangelistic. You're not keeping those quote outsiders at a distance. You're walking toward them. You want them to see you, you want them to ask questions. We build relationships in the world not to save them just by preaching, but to expose them to God-glorifying living. Because that is whimsical and attractive and alluring and powerful. And if you're only hanging out with Christians, no one sees you. And I guarantee if you have a job or you go out of these doors, you are going to walk near outsiders. I'm saying just walk toward them a little bit more. And as we walk in the world, God and Paul does not expect that we'll be giving judgments and declarations, but we'll be giving answers to questions. See, the difference that Christ makes in our lives should make people curious. And if no one's asking you questions about your life in Christ, you should probably ask yourself some hard questions that perhaps you're not living like him. Well, no one's asking me any questions. Why is that? Are you sitting in your cubicle hiding away? Do you never talk to anybody or spend time with anybody? Or do you spend time with lots of people and still no one's asking questions? When we seek out opportunities, I think, to speak God's truth, we also must be intentional about how we speak. If you're going to be hoping to answer questions, you have to be careful about what you say. And It says, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt. You may know how to answer each person. Uh, My wife, who is the most sanctifying person in my life, put on her Jesus gloves this week and beat the crap out of me. And what she revealed to me was my tendency to be very critical in my words and not very gracious, which like, fantastic. get to preach this sermon. It's weird how God does that every week, something. Gracious words are really interesting. A lot of us are, um, and I think it's true, I believe that the Bible's words are powerful, but we can't use that as an excuse, right? The Bible's words transform and not man's, but you can't use it as an excuse to go out and be rude, critical, brash, or even boring, okay? We can't just speak words in a flippant way because, well, they're God's words. Here's a verse and move on. Whenever you talk, to, with, or about a friend, a neighbor, a group, whether they're rich, old, young, educated, uneducated, a friend, or an enemy, we need to speak graciously, whether your flesh and my flesh consider them worthy of a conversation or not. That's what gracious words are. Grace is undeserved favor. Grace, there's a lot of people like, I'm not going to say that because they're not worth it. We may not think it exactly like that, but we go there. And that's with outsiders, not just non-believers, that might even be people who we're close to, but we've kind of left outside. Grace is having those conversations with people, or at times, we don't think they're deserved. And the truth is that righteous words, biblical words, are meaningless when you have an unrighteous life next to it. And the same goes with a righteous life is meaningless if there's ungracious words. Words must build up always. You must always aim to speak the words of life, even if those who don't, or who are listening, don't speak them to us. That's hard. But that's the heart of Christ, who in Peter was described this way, Christ committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he didn't revile in return, and when he suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued to trust himself to him who judges justly. Jesus was spoken to in very accusatory, lying ways, blasphemous ways, and yet he never reviled in return. Instead, he spoke graciously. And then lastly, it says salty. So speaking graciously doesn't mean you can't be critical or bold. But it means we have to be discerning in the moment. And Paul says that gracious speech includes using salty language. Now, that doesn't mean language laced with profanity. Like some old sailor. Okay, Although it might be... uh, Prudent to speak like that with certain people at times, but salt has several purposes: um, ice roads, it's a preservative, you kill slugs with it. But <clears throat> salt is a, um, a marijuana, I, I never really understood what salt was for baking purposes, but what it does, and for you probably know more than I do, um, it's to bring out the other flavors in a meal, and it makes things more rich. And I do believe that our language needs to have some flavor to it. It needs to be saucy. Right? But salt um, doesn't work the same way every time in the same amounts. Even on the same foods. Uh, grace, I believe, comes from the perfect amount of salt at the right time. And the right meal. Ephesians four twenty nine, which may be a well known verse to you, says, "Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may grace, give grace to those who hear." And I don't want to over spiritualize this point. I think it's very really quite simple. Um, <clears throat> we want words that are flavorful, not bland, and not shocking. Doesn't mean never shock anybody, but when you're having conversations, um, you need to have ones that are being led with love. And what's that mean? It means I'm actually concerned about the heart of the person I'm speaking to. I actually want to speak life into that person. And so you learn really quickly, as one commentator said, that we are supposed to work hard to make the right word at the right time with the right person. And not just throw salt everywhere. I can speak saucy with all kinds of people, but it may not be what's needed in the moment. In the moment it might need a word of encouragement, might need a word of rebuke, might need silence. And it's being discerning about that and quite frankly prayerful. I don't know how often you pray before you send an email. I've learned to pray a lot before I send an email. <laughs> For wrong reasons I've had to learn that. I've learned to pray about having conversations. I've prayed in the midst of conversations. Why? Because I want God to guard my mouth. But I also want the words that are coming out of my mouth to be life-giving, and they haven't always been. I believe prayer is the key. The more we talk to God, the more we know God, the more we spend time with Him, the more we're going to know ourselves and our weaknesses and tendencies, like I tendency to be critical, my tendency to not be encouraging, and God saying, you need to put, go back this way, the more we're going to begin to talk, I think, and listen to people and speak more graciously to them and actually be a pretty powerful witness. The funny thing is when you begin to pray to God, you begin to actually listen to him as well, and he begins to tell you things you don't like which he begins to realize or reveal to you where you're weak and where you need to compensate or where you need to work so that you say the right thing. And let us not forget that Christ was perfect at saying the right thing. And this is how Christ engaged with us. I want you to just think about this because Paul entire and we're going to come and we're going to have communion. And I want you to remember, what, this is kind of like the Jesus closet here where you're coming up and you're confessing that You are weak, you are broken, you fall short, and Christ, if you're a believer, has come to live within you. So you're capable of doing this. You're capable of putting on Christ and speaking like it. So let's just close with remembering how Christ spoke to us. Christ spoke to you, if you're a believer, in just the right way. And I'm telling you, as you pray, he still does that. And the things that he says sometimes are very hard truths but they're very inviting truths. They're very honest truths. This is what he said and has said to me, and maybe you. He say you're a sinner, but I love you. You're hurt, but I love you. I'm here. You're weird, but I love you. You're mean, but I love you. You're wrong, but I love you. You screwed up, but I love you. You're broken, but I love you. You are lost, but I love you. You're forgiven, and I love you. That's what I want to hear in prayer, and that's what God says in prayer. My hope is that that's how you speak to others. And I'm just, if nothing else, I want you to understand that that only happens through prayer. Not because it's some magical thing, but because it is the grace by which God has given for us to commune with him, and that's how we change, communing with him. I'm going to close in prayer. Well, elders are going to make a commitment to be up front, which is something that another change that we're trying to be available for prayer, of which I've had probably 10 people ask me that in the last two years. Why don't we do that? I had all kinds of excuses. Done with excuses. I'm just expressing that as a man, and as a church, we need to pray more. And I'm committed to, to doing that. Quite frankly, as uncomfortable as it is for me sometimes. You might think that's weird, but I'm just being honest with you. So I'm going to lead you in prayer, and uh, I'm going to pray for our prayer, honestly. Let's pray.